If you find yourself recoiling against the new and dismissing it, you need to quit. To be brutal about it, you need to quit. You're done. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I don't want to get to know you. I want to understand your business. I want to understand you in the context of your business. I'm not looking for a friend. I'm looking for an investment opportunity. That's Rory O'Driscoll, and despite what you just heard, he's actually a really nice guy. He's a partner at Scale Venture Partners and has led investments in Box and DocuSign and Exact Target, among others. He likes investing in entrepreneurs. He just doesn't like networking with them. You told someone once you're an awful networker. Is that true? I think... I, I think... I, you said it. Yeah, I did say it, probably. Um, I don't lead with networking. I think in this business, there's two ways to do the business. It's kind of the dimension of the who you know dimension and what you believe dimension, right? And I tend to be much more the what do you believe and what do you want to invest in first, which means that your kind of first instinctive action is to sit back and think, is this a market I believe in to do some research rather than the other method of, you know, do I know these people? Are, you know, do I want to back them just because I know them, right? Now, as I've done it for a long time, I've actually recognized, A, there's actually wisdom in both, and both methods work. I see people who are all in on one method, all in on the other method, and both works. But I think the best way in the end is to be able to vote, right? I don't think you can do this business unless you can both read people and get on with them, right? And I think at the one-on-one -on -one level, I you know, very much enjoy that, right? I don't enjoy so much the you know, interminable meaningless conversations, right? I much prefer to have, like, I love to meet a founder and talk about what they're doing, right? The idea of, and, you know, really genuine talk about, them, about you know, what they're doing and think about it and kind of process through it. You know, the idea of, quote, just meeting for coffee, you know, makes me want to tear my hair out, right? And when I say that, it always feels a little jerky because in the end, these are, you know, deeply human relationships for five or 10 years. And, you know, many of the people I've backed 10 or 15 years ago are close personal friends. But, 
it starts through the prism of the business rather than just the touchy-feely, because I don't think you learn anything that way. But it's unlikely you're going to find Rory O'Driscoll at a networking event. Don't do a ton of them, I will admit, right? I mean, my wife, after about 10 years, said, did you ever get anything from any of them? And I had to go, mm, mm. And she said, so how about you be home with the kids? <laughs> and I rolled. Now, is, the, is this because you're introverted? Um... You is know, there I, such thing as an introverted Irishman? I'm not. I mean, people who know me would not say I'm into. It's, it's rarely been. I've rarely been accused of it. Right. It's more. Yeah, that's a funny thing. Though I will say I love the Susan Cain book on introverts. Right. I thought it was a really profoundly important book about, you know, that you don't have to be a rah-rah. And I think we're seeing a lot of that now, which is, is that, you know, some of the information on le successful leaders who are much more about managing teams and being a little, uh, and much less about the rara. So I, th I think that I, I, I like that strain of thing. I don't think I'm as introverted as that. I like people. I like going out. I like a few drinks on a Friday night. I enjoy company. But I think when I'm doing the work, as I say, I think it's, I think it's as simple as if you lead from what are you doing versus who are you. It's, it, you're not just trying to, quote, unquote, meet people. You're trying to understand what's happening and what matters and therefore how that falls into whether or not it's an interesting investment opportunity for you. You came to America from Ireland with $200? 250 uh, I think. Uh, I, there is, I, technically, I actually came most recently from London. I'd actually moved from Ireland to London, had a business that didn't work out. But fundamentally, yes, you have to be able to prove you can support yourself to get into the United States. So, yes, I had to save up for my 200 bucks to get in so that the guy at the... Uh, Immigration couldn't say, send you back because you can't support yourself. So, yes, I had that money. Now, this sounds like you came in on a horse cart or something like that, but you were coming from, what, the London School of Economics, right? Indirectly, actually, yeah, I, I had a great degree from the London School of Economics, but then I'd done my own business in the UK, and it hadn't worked out, and four years later, I was genuinely broke. And what you discover is, especially at that time, it was super hard in the UK to recover from something like that in your career. Um, you know, it, it was just, you'd gone off the track, you'd not done the accepted thing of, you know, joining Goldman Sachs after London School of Economics, and now you were some dude of 26 who had a failed business. And it was just really hard to make it there. And, you know, the bet was it would be easier over here, which in retrospect turned out to be a good bet. So, yeah, so it was, it was odd. And, you know, initially it was hard here, but then what happened is, you know, the, the degree stands you in good stead eventually and you know i was able to um you know start work ultimately in venture capital but yes it was a there was a convoluted period of around two or three years where i would have to say that at the time you look back and go hmm this was probably not a good move from the ls it, it hasn't really worked out as planned when i was you know emigrating here with 200 bucks and working in a graveyard but there you go i was gonna ask what was your first job in the united states well i think i've said this a lot i always feel like i'm dining out almost on the story but it's like yeah i worked in a graveyard and it wasn't that i was digging holes i was actually running doing the accounting for the books as a temp and you know the, you know it was it was a job it was a first job every immigrant has a shitty first job story yeah. it's just the nature of the yeah. beast right and you know I, what sticks and you know it was totally fine and then i was lucky enough to meet someone who was working at Bank of America and ended up joining Bank of America's venture capital group and had been there ever since. But yeah, everyone has a tough first job. And I remember, it's not the, the whole great thing, but actually realizing that, you know, as an immigrant, you know, you, four years ago, you graduate from the LSC. And now, before I got that job, they gave me an accounting test. 
could I add and subtract? I mean, I literally was sitting there going, hmm, four years ago I had a first class honors degree, and now the person at the temp agency is confirming that I can do basic mathematics. We have gone down a long way. Right? And I, when you put LSE on your application and at no the temp knows, agency, they have no, one knows. They have no, no idea, idea what it is. That's exactly right. It, it was all wasted. But look, it all worked out great. And, you know, no complaints. It looks that way. In fact, it uh, worked out great. I was looking it up. Uh, I think you have 54,726 shares of Box. Uh, this is a company called yep. Box, for those who are not familiar with it, uh, at $17.87. That's a million dollars in change right there, just in your in your Box holdings. There's obviously other things. So from 250 bucks to, in Box stock alone, a million bucks. Um, Sound about right? That sounds about right. It sounds okay. I'll go with it. Yes, okay. I yes, yes, and I realize that's just you know a very yeah, yeah. small part of your yeah. your overall net worth. But what does that feel like to go from two hundred and fifty dollars coming in on the you know the pretend ox cart, right? Yeah, the pretend to, ox cart. Exactly. Doing well. Look, I don't know. Wow, I didn't expect to talk about this. Um, look, I think. Yeah, I think for a while, I mean, honest answers, for a while, every immigrant, you know, you're driven because you're poor. I mean, you know, I'm not going to give the, the money doesn't matter speech because it would be bullshit. You know, when I came here, I had no money. And candidly, I owed thousands of dollars back in the UK because my company had gone bust. Right. So I wanted the money. Right. And I worked really hard to get the money. Right. Because, um, you know, the old, you know, I think, you know, that Zaza Gabor used to say, I've been rich, I've been poor and rich is better. Right. And, you know, you really only have the luxury of despising money once you have it. Right. So there was a period of time, look, where you just hustled and you worked really, really hard because you remembered what it was like. I mean, I said I had 200 bucks and I came over here. I didn't tell you I borrowed half of it from my then girlfriend, now wife. Right. And, you know, as she reminds me now, as she explains community property to me way back <laughs> when she bought me a pair of shoes. Right. That's when the first month of meeting because I couldn't cover them. Right. That is the ultimate seed investment. That, by the she way. did well. She did well. She points out you do good deals. I did a better deal. Um, but you get the freedom to choose what you want to do, right? And I actually, I'm lucky in that I really enjoy the job I currently have. So I my think plan- that's the ultimate in luxury because I am in the same place. Yeah. I am doing exactly what I want to do the way I want to do it, which means Monday morning rolls around and I'm perfectly fine with going into the office. Totally, I love Mondays. No, um, yeah, I remember one of my partners who also loved his job, and he was also like me raising, you know, kids in their tents. So he used to say, TGIM, thank God it's Monday. Right? And my wife even said, you'll go to an office, you'll tell people what to do, they'll do it. There'll be order, there'll be structure. You, you like what you do. How bad is that? No, it totally, it's, it's, it, it is a, it's a great luxury. And, you know, lots of people don't have it. I mean, I'm in my mid-50s, and one of the interesting phenomena you start happening now, I think, is... And this will not resonate even slightly to any 20-something listener out there, so oh well, is at, at early 50s, you start having conversation with your friends and your peers, and you know, what are you going to do? What's it all about? Everyone's kind of at that point where the kids are in college, and you get really fundamental, what do I, you know, what aid do I want to do? You know, do I like what I do or do I want something different? And then secondly is, can I continue doing it or do I have to quit? Right. And it's kind of a two-by-two two matrix there. There's a lot of jobs where people are very structured out times where they're done. And I'm lucky enough to have a job where that isn't the case. And then I'm lucky enough to like what I do. So in kind of the two-by-two matrix, I'm clearly in the I'm really happy space, right? And, you know, not everyone gets that. You know, I think especially, and as you get older, you realize that is is that, you know, it's um, it's a, careers are an interesting thing. And the back end arc of the career as you hit 50 plus, it's just an interesting time. And I think it's interesting, the honest conversations you have with your friends about it. They're very different than the conversations you'd have with someone at 30, Mm -hmm. you know? 
I'm 51. I think I'm having more fun currently than I ever have. I just I'm I'm good at what I do. I'm comfortable. Uh, the kids are pretty much set. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally buy that. I think, you know, I, I think there was a great article in the Atlantic Monthly, the, you know, your, the arc of your career you know, as it goes down is closer than you think. It really got wide. And it was very good. It made, but it, it kind of, and it sounds like it's a counterpoint to what you're saying. It actually isn't because it made, it was Arthur Brooks who wrote it. Um, and it was, it made the point that, you know, there are things that one does better in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, and there are different things that you do better in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. And there's an arc down as you transition and probably sounds like the business you're in, the business I'm in, it, it, it's, it's a business you can pursue in your 40s and 50s to some extent if you have, you know, you need the good business judgment. But there are things you just, you have to compensate for the things you can't do as well. And I think in our business, in venture, the number one non-negotiable thing is this. If you find yourself recoiling against the new and dismissing it, you need to quit. To be brutal about it, you need to quit, you're done. Right. If you lack the curiosity to check, the curiosity to look, or the imagine, uh, and if you find yourself instinctively saying, you know, I saw that 20 years ago, that won't work, then you need to either change or get out because you will absolutely fail. So that's the hard, that, that, that is one of the hardest things you got to watch, which is not becoming that, you know, crusty old guy who, you know, knows why it doesn't work. Which I think happens to lots of people because, you know, maybe not in venture capital, but maybe in politics or something, you see people as they get older and older be more set in their ways, not willing to accept, you know, a new idea. And I do fear that, that when I am 70, there will be something in which my grandchildren will say, oh, come on, Grandpa, yep. everybody knows that's okay. And I'll say, no, I can't, but I, do, I can't think of what that would be, you know. That's because, and that's, yes, exactly, because you can't, because if right. you could, it would be there now. Yes. Right? And I think you just got to fight against it. I mean, I think that, again, this is where a collegial group, a partnership helps, which is, um, because we also, I, I, I know I occasionally exhibit that behavior, and I, one of the things I like about the rest of it, they'll call me on it. Yes. Right? And they'll say, you know, you, you remember you said that about X. And I'm like, yep, I did, and I was wrong. And I think just, I think one of the interesting things about a venture capital business or any investment business is we're in the decision business. We don't make widgets. We don't make phones. We don't make software. We make decisions, right? And we make eight to ten positive decisions a year and a whole load of no's. And if three to five of those positive 10 decisions are right, we do well. And if none of the no decisions are catastrophically bad, and that is to say passing on something amazing, you can kind of sleep at night. But that's the product we make. So it, it requires a high degree of kind of intellectual honesty among the group around things like this. And looking at your we talk a lot about biases, and you're right, you know, anchoring all the classic Kahneman thinking biases, but one of the ones is the harumph, it'll never work because I saw that 20 years ago, right? And in fact, I've actually internalized the exact opposite. Most things that ultimately work were tried 20 years ago and failed, and then the situation changes and they now work. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You said that about AI, that AI is not as revolutionary as some of the people pretend it to be, that this has been more of a slow progression of AI. And looking back at it many years from now, we won't think of companies as being AI companies because AI will just be part of what computer software is. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, there's a lot in that. Yeah, I mean, definitely, look, kind of people started talking about AI in 1956, which, you know, depending on where you create ENIAC was probably 10 years after the first, you know, massively mainframe vacuum tube based computer, right? So this has been thought about a long time. And you're right, what's happened is there's been these busts of productivity in AI and then kind of these AI winters. Uh, you know, there's been one in the 80s, one in the 90s, and, you know, not a lot happened then for 10 years, and then this latest explosion, you know, probably starting in 2012 with the whole deep learning, p- the papers on deep learning, and then the progress on vision. So, yes, this is another one of those AI springs. I mean, if, if you have AI winters, then you also have AI springs. This is clearly an AI spring, and it's cumulative. You know, the stuff that was invented 10, 20 years ago, you're right, now doesn't seem like AI. I mean... If you if you'd shown someone Alexa, yeah, you know what, twenty years ago they would have said that's impossible. Yeah, I mean we. And that's were, not even AI, really. Yeah, I mean we were investors in SpeechWorks, uh, which became part of Nuance in '99. Um, remember, we did very well on that, and um, that was early speech recognition. And you're right, it's the and it was so it was the idea of speech recognition was there, and I think there'd been generations before that, but it was very limiting in terms of what you could do. And, you know, you didn't, I mean, the best example, I think United was one of the best, biggest customers. And if you think back, I always say it very practical, if you think back to how you used to interact with the United uh, voice recognition system, like even eight, 10 years ago, it was, you know, at, they'd say, you tell me yes or no. It was very structured. Tell me yes or no. Is this your flight? Say yes, say no. And it was very leaden, right, and painful. And over the last eight, 10 years, you can see the, you, in real time, now you can talk to it much more conversationally. It's still nowhere near perfect, but you can interrupt, you can go back, you can do a lot more. And that's, you know, just watching the speech recognition technology improve significantly um, in that period of time. Now, I'll give you an insider's tip. If you want to pitch O'Driscoll at his conference table at Scale Ventures, there are two words he really dislikes. Don't call yourself a revolutionary, and for goodness sakes, never say your company is shifting the paradigm. If you read, you know, paradigm, it's the word came from Thomas Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolutions, right? You know, Newtonian physics was a paradigm shift, right? And once you agree that that's a paradigm shift and relativity is a paradigm shift, I'm sorry, most software is not. 
right? There are a few, there may be, like, I, I think some of the stuff, obviously, Jobs and Apple did was. I think a lot of data stuff is not at that level of paradigm shift. So, you know, so it's a useful word, but then what people, to be even vaguely correct, you say a paradigm shift within the industry of blur. Right. So you end up, you know, it's a paradigm shift within the teeny tiny industry that you've never heard of. So whatever. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a descriptor. I'm fine with it. I suppose the reason I push back at it is much more a, especially in a bull market, I'm inherently suspicious of arm wavy stuff. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, you get back to the question, what does it do? Does it do it well? And is it working? Right. And who's, and who's going to cut us a check? That's exactly right. No, in the end, who's going to buy this? And as a friend of mine used to say years ago, who gets promoted for buying this this year? Right? It's very like forget about you. Think about the customer. Who at the end of the year, whose boss says, "I'm so glad you bought that software this year. We are doing really much better." If you can't pass that test, it's really hard. Look, looking ahead to what whatever happens next, and I don't know that we know what happens next. You've written in almost every company in my portfolio, we're taking a more judicious approach to investment looking to prune the marginal initiatives. Are you spending less money, investing less money, investing more carefully? Um, I think the answer is yes. Um, I think that when everyone's happy, you should be a little nervous, and when everyone's nervous, you should be a little aggressive, right? And everyone's very happy right now, right? I think that, um, you know, we're continuing to invest. I continue to invest. You know, I would say reasonably aggressively at a fairly steady pace. You know, we're going, we end up doing eight deals a year. We're going to end up doing eight deals this year. We did eight deals last year. We did eight deals in 2010, right? And you know, the composition stage value, all some parameters of those deals might change. But, you know, you, in venture, I mean, the thing about venture is unlike some lower growth industries where it's all about how well you buy, right? Because at the, at the end of the day, if something can only grow at 5% a year, if you buy wrong by 40%, you're never going to outgrow it. You can hold it for eight years and you're done, right? If something can grow at 100% a year, you can survive a little bit of outpayment provided the, provided the raw investment works. What that means is one of the strengths of the venture capital business is that if you're picking good companies, you can invest throughout the cycle at a reasonably consistent rate. And they'll, you know, the truth is in periods where the timing of both valuations going in and valuations going out are positive, you know, you will get a lift. You know, a fund that might have been a 3x fund could be a 4x fund just because you bought cheap and you sold dear, right? And the other way also, a fund that could have been a 3x might be a 2x, right? But the, the thing that you have within your control is if you're picking companies that have secular growth trends, then the impact of cyclicality is by definition much less. In a way that, for example, in a buyout business, that's not the case. You know, if you, as I say, if you buy a mature business, at the wrong price. There's nothing, because nothing magical will happen to a company that's growing at 5%. It'll grow at 5% or 6 or 4, right? Whereas our businesses, you do get that magic. So you, you don't have, so you can manage around the cycle easier, but kind of going back to your quote, at the same time, I remember years ago, someone said to me, you always run these companies to some extent on the current rules, right? Not the rules, but the current rules. And and, and you got to be ready to change. I mean, I think at the moment, the truth is you can be judicious, but at the same time, people are spending, you know, fairly aggressively and trying to grow aggressively. And if you get left behind, you're left behind, right? And it would be wrong 
And we both, both foolish and wrong for me to say to my companies, hey, you know, you should go all into cash conservation mode. The truth is, in many of the markets we're playing in, other companies are being aggressive and you have to be relevant, right? So I think one of the things experience brings to the table, actually going back to something I said earlier, is you also got to know when it changed, right? Mm-hmm. If the market changes, you got to be able to say, look, not in a whiplash kind of way, but look, is that we have to accept that now the availability of capital has changed, which is bad. But on the other hand, the likelihood of new competitors emerging has changed, which is good. It might have gone down. So therefore, if your ultimate goal is to build the one, two, or three winner in a space, you can, as it were, adjust how you, your race plan, to use kind of sailing metaphor, right, based on the conditions, right? And, you know, sometimes you have to sprint for the line because the other guys are sprinting. Uh, to totally mixed metaphors. <laughs> but on the other times, you know, you say the key is to survive and be the winner, right, in that market. So I, I, I think it's very much time-dependent and deal-dependent. Circling back to the beginning, what would you tell the young Irishman with $250 in his pocket? Well, let's give it a little inflation. $350 in his pocket who has come to America. Well, yeah, it, it just this is a great business. I mean, I think that the first thing I'd say is yes, um, take more risk. Take more risk, definitely. I think that be more optimistic, right, in the sense of um, not in a Pollyanna kind of way, but the truth is, yeah, I think a lot of investing is, you know, in the public markets is a temper, you know, tempered cynicism. I think this business is tempered optimism, right? Because the truth is, you know, there's no other business, equity business in the world that has the same uncapped upside, Right. And I look back and I go, you know, you, you, you have to be clear eyed, you have to be realistic. But at the same time, you have to look for those investments that have big markets, have big opportunities and are thinking big. Right. And um, because that's just the correct strategy to win. Right. This is not. This is not a I mean, as I remember one of my partners, many of you said, the investors aren't coming for us for the safest equity investment in their portfolio, right? They're, they don't want you to throw it all away. They don't want you to be drunken sailors, but they want you to invest and create the companies that can, you know, give them that massive extra return and believe it's doable. I mean, it's very hard to, until you've seen it. I mean, I think the hardest thing to convey is until you've seen it happen and felt it happen, it's very hard to understand, right? But then you kind of go, oh, I get it. Coming myself from a family who has roots in Ireland, I am a bit reluctant to bring up the concept of luck. Luck of the Irish is quite the cliche, but O'Driscoll isn't afraid of it. Not afraid to admit something we really haven't heard up until now. Some of the success of those in venture capital is just plain old lucky timing. The main thing in the last 10 years is anyone who's been putting money out in the last 10 years has been incredibly lucky. It turns out if you buy at the bottom of a 10-year bull market and you hold a lot of stock all the way up, you look really, really smart, right? And if you're honest, I mean, I think, is it Julia Druckmann who, you know, that writer, the American in Paris, she has a great expression. It's it's 90% cohort. Most of your life is 90% cohort. In other words, and actually if... One of our principals was actually giving me the same equivalent in venture. He said they did some research on trying to identify patterns of success in venture, 
right? You know, school, background, education, operator versus investor, no statistical correlation whatsoever. And the only thing they found statistical correlation on was this year of first deal. In other words, if you did your first deal in 1999, you didn't make it. I watched all, the, I did my first deal in 95. I watched all those people in 99 enter the industry, do five deals and get fired, right? If you did your first deal in 2009 or 2010, you made out like a bandit because you got good positive feedback early on and you just wrote it up, right? So I, I, no one ever wants to say it, but repeat, it's, you know, we all think that we are, you know, the great man school of life or the great woman school of life, 90% cohort, 90% timing. I turned out I was lucky enough to be a software investor with a checkbook in hand in March of 09 when, you know, the equity markets started on a 10-year overall upward trend and cloud software started on a 10-year upward trend that accentuated that. Lucky me. And, you know, I think the only smart thing to do is to be able to admit it. Rory O'Driscoll, Scale Venture Partners. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers, executive produced by Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni.